Hi everyone, it's great to have you along for another edition of the podcast. I hope wherever you may be around the world, you're managing to stay in good spirits. With things changing on a weekly basis and at different rates around the world, it's really great to see people getting back on the water, enjoying time with family, out getting wet, enjoying the wind. And for those quieter moments, well, that's what we're here for. And this month, we've got an absolute treat in store. We'll come to that in a moment. But before we do, as always, thank you so much for all your feedback, for your support and your comments on the pod. If you do like what you're hearing, do please give us a like, leave a comment and let all your friends know you've been enjoying the podcast. It all helps so much here in podcast land. I've been busy over here in Cowes, taking the time to recharge a little, but also to try and set a few things in motion as we all move forward. And just like my two teenage kids, I've been online schooling. It's been great, and I'm not gonna lie, it's been a challenge at times, but I've been brushing up on my navigation and chart reading with the ever so patient teacher at UKSA. I'm hoping I've picked up a few more podcast listeners from my online classmates. Guys, if you're listening, welcome to the pod. But I strongly recommend it. If you're messing about in boats and want to deepen your knowledge, maybe even just get a little refresher, then there's some great online resources available. It's been fun, trust me. So, Who have we got lined up this week? Well, if you're listening to this, you're already going to know that joining me for this week's podcast is one of the most talented, most decorated, most successful sailors of not just his own generation, but of all time. In 2012, he became the most successful Olympic sailor ever, claiming a fourth Olympic gold medal at the London Games, and just one year later was standing on the podium holding the America's Cup, having played a key role in that much-discussed comeback win by Oracle Team USA out on the windy waters of San Francisco Bay. I am, of course, talking about British sailor Sir Ben Ainsley who you may have most recently seen out on Sydney Harbour, where in his first ever SailGP event, he took out four from five fleet races and the winner takes all match race, putting on a dominant display in the super fast F50 catamaran. It was really great to see Ben back racing in Sydney. It was the venue that saw him win his first Olympic gold medal back in 2000 and we were Team GB teammates back then and racing out on the same courses. Ultimately we both ended up on the top step of the podium but Ben's medal win, his approach to the final race, was a real mark of his dogged, no compromise, attacking character. We talk through all of that and reflect on a whole lot more of Ben's Olympic sailing career in the first part before in part two of the pod, looking more at Ben's relationship with the America's Cup and how well placed he sees himself and his team in ES Team UK as this 36th America's Cup draws ever closer. 
We talked to Ben at the team base in Portsmouth. Social distancing, of course, but it was an exciting day. As we arrived, the crane was out and the stealthy, imposing matte black AC75 was out front and there was much activity. The team were preparing for their first day back out on the water after months of lockdown. He's a busy man, Ben, so before we get underway, I have to send him a massive thanks for being so generous with his time. Trying to win back the America's Cup brings with it a massive amount of pressure. So sitting down to chat for a couple of hours, well, it's really appreciated. I hope you enjoy the time I spent with Sir Ben Ainsley. Remember this moment because it's probably the best sailing moment you'll ever get in your life. I remember the first time I went sailing in an Optimist, I just had a duffel coat and Wellington boots on. It sounds crazy now, but I wasn't sure I'd ever get the chance again to go to the Olympics. Well, thanks for joining us on the podcast, Ben. We're here at your team base, obviously still social distancing our way through life, but it's great you can join us, Ben. It's no exaggeration to say that every week we get messages from listeners asking when you'll be on the podcast. So it really massive thanks for making it happen. No, it's a it's a, it's a pleasure, and uh, no, it's been fun listening to the podcast you've you've been doing and uh, different stories, and yeah, really fascinating. So yeah, pleasure to be on on the podcast. I was going to ask you if you'd listened to any, if you actually sort of knew what you were in for. <laughs> I listened to a, f a few and had some great people. Uh, obviously, Purse is a is a great mate of mine, so I, I really enjoyed listening to to his thoughts and. Uh, guys like Russell and Paul and 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 Jimmy and and so so many so many people that so many different experiences across the sport really so yeah, it's been great. We've enjoyed it too. Actually, getting to to listen to people for a length of time. And Ben, we're here at the at the team base. It's a great spot. The cut boat is back from Sardinia. Actually, just going in the water as we arrived today. Um, boat two is still being built. Schedules a bit up in the air. I mean, not ideal in a cup campaign, of course. We don't want to dwell on the virus scenario, but you know, how has progress here been affected by the whole thing? Well, obviously it's been difficult getting on the water. We haven't done that now for three months. Today is the first day back out, which is a you know, big day for the team. And that's been frustrating, but in pretty much every other area we've been able to continue and progress has been really good. And as you know, we're, we're very reliant on simulation now and development through the through the cup and our our team have done a great job on that front so that hasn't slowed down and in fact actually it's probably intensified because we haven't had the distraction of being out on the water and jason carrington and his team over at uh, carrington boats in hive have, have done an amazing job to keep our second boat our race boat on track through this and you know working through covid practices and so on so yeah it's been hard but i think that i'm really pleased with how the team's reacted to it and done the done the best we possibly can through that and it's you know it's affected you know it's affecting everybody but in our own America's Cup world it's affected the teams in different ways you can't really obviously can't control that you just got to do the best that you can in your own environment and try and make the right decisions and and react to that and thankfully we've got a strong team here that that are able to do that oh that's good news 
Let's touch on your last outing at Racing a Boat. It was a bit of a statement, wasn't it? A new team straight into the spotlight in Sydney Harbour at the opening round of the new GP season. And you absolutely bossed the fleet. I mean, how much fun was GP down in Sydney? I mean, you definitely looked, Ben, like you were in your happy place. Yeah, well, it obviously helps when you're getting the results. But I, I do have to say it's one of the best... Uh, event sailing experience I've ever had. It was just brilliant. You know, I, I went down there with the team and I wasn't quite sure because everything's so tightly regulated. I wasn't quite sure how frustrating it would be in terms of getting out in the water, the training time. But, you know, I was amazed, you know, firstly, how well run the whole thing was, you know, from the, the shared boat um, resource, you know, getting all the boats out in the water and so on, really smooth operation. And then uh, we, we actually had you know, tons of time out on the water. I think we were getting sort of four or five hours a day for a week building up to the event, which is way more than I expected we would. And, you, you know, you, we both sailed in Sydney loads and it's just such a magical place to sail. And I think it was the second or third day out and we actually had a good mate of mine, Chris Cecil Wright, was on, on the boat, on the back of the boat as we are going back towards the uh, Cockatoo Island where the boats were being kept and we so we were going downwind towards the op opera house and the bridge, you know, at four or five o'clock in the evening and just magical 40, 40, 45 knots of boat speed. And you know, I turned around to Chris and I said, remember this moment because it's probably the best sailing moment you will ever get in your life because it was just perfect. And you sort of had to pinch yourself a little bit that uh, you were there doing that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I loved it. it was, I just thought it was brilliant. Oh, it's a special place. I mean, even watching you on the television, you could just tell that in many ways, I guess, you know, a relief just to be just to be racing and not have to deal with with everything else. Yeah, it was. It was great to be out there on the water and, and the team were just just amazing. You know, it's all of the guys had sailed last season in different with with different teams. But, you know, to jump on a boat like that and every guy in his position was, you know, almost faultless, really. And we just gelled really well as a team. You know, the first day we went out training, uh, it was pretty breezy actually, southerly, shifty, breezy, similar to actually the first day of racing. And we were quite sort of understandably cautious, you know, let's talk our way, our way through a bear away and attack and a jive and all the sort of basics. And within about 10 minutes, we were just throwing, <laughs> throwing the thing around. And then Tom, Tom, Tom Slingsby and his and the Aussie guys came out and we started racing against them and we were neck and neck and just having a mate and Tom actually sent a, a message the, that evening saying oh thank that was that was that was awesome training you know and I just said yeah I totally blown away by the performance of the boats and that we were out there throwing it around and 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 racing toe to toe with those guys who obviously you know dominated the first season really along with the Japanese team so yeah, we were straight into it and, uh, you know, had a, had a fantastic team and obviously things went, went really well. Oh, it was good to see. Ben, we're going to go way back. Um, I can remember the very first time I met you. Uh, you were standing in the queue for dinner at the Youth Nationals in Largs, Scotland. So up in my neck of the woods, there was this young, shy, gangly boy. I mean, 14 maximum. Um, and you were already by then the talk of British sailing. That's Ben Ainsley, everyone was whispering. 
And then the next day I was out watching the racing and you smashed your tiller extension to bits. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a, sure that why. That sounds a bit more like it, yeah. Got <laughs> I'm not sure those. why, Ben, but you were fired up to win even back then. What was the young Ben Ainsley, the boy, what was he like? Yeah, well, you're right. I was incredibly shy as a youngster. I'm not really sure why. Um, but yeah, that was something that I uh, was very, very shy. Took an age to go up and talk to anybody, really. And um, But I had this somewhere, from somewhere, this sort of burning desire to be good at sailing, basically. It's something I, it's what I always loved doing. My dad was a really keen sailor, but an ocean sailor. It wasn't a dinghy sailor, didn't really know anything about that. But I was really fortunate when I was about eight years old, we moved to, my family moved to Cornwall. We lived in, in Cheshire, which for those not from the UK, is in the middle of the country near Manchester. And we did a bit of sailing at the weekends in North Wales and so on, but we didn't get on the water that much. And then, as I say, we moved to Cornwall and that's where sailing really took off for me because we lived in a small fisherman's cottage on one of the creeks, or Strongit Creek. And so I was able to just um, wheel my Optimus down to the beach and just go out, out sailing on my own. And it was sort of different, different times then. You could sort of do that without any coach boats or what have you. And I remember the first time I went sailing in an Optimist and I, I just had a duffel coat and Wellington boots on. Then I'm in a life jacket, which is nuts. I mean, there's no way I'd let my, my daughter go out uh, without any uh, life jacket or anything like that. But that's just what you did in those days. And um, so I spent loads of time in the water, just really loved it. And, um, and then started racing and just loved the competition. And so, yeah, as I grew up, I was really, really determined to try and be good at sailing, very shy. And so I was a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde character really on and off the water. And as I've grown up, those two characters have sort of slowly merged, um, I think. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that, that's sort of how it started. Did you have an awareness at all that, that you were good at this? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I was good. I was really fortunate. The local club, Restaurant Sailing Club, one of the parents was a really successful firefly sailor called Phil Slater. And he had two kids similar age to me. And he really started the, the training at the club. And just in his spare time, he and his wife, Julie, and then they drew in some of the other parents who would help out. And and so we had the, barri uh, the parrots, which were the beginners. We had the barracudas, which were the sort of intermediates, and then the aces, which were the top. So I started off as a parrot and um, worked my way through like everybody else and, and then started doing well. There were quite, quite a few other really good sailors that came out of that, that club. Um, a guy called David Lenz, who's, who races a lot, one of the top sailors here in the UK and, and top sail designer with North Sails now. So he and I had some amazing races. I mean, actually, probably some of the toughest racing that I've had in my career, <laughs> you know, going up against people like Robert Scheidt, actually going up against David Lenz was probably probably tougher. And I think that was great, that competition at that age as youngsters coming through in our Optimus. Um, so we went from, you know, having a few people who were top 10 in the country, maybe, to, to being the top club in the country. And um, so, fantastic training ground and I learned a lot through those years. As a teenager, I mean, you weren't the only talent in the British camp back then, of course. We I mean, recently spoke to Ian Percy on the podcast and he talked about that, that golden era in the UK. So many youngsters went on to become big names in sailing, all from that generation. 
What do you remember about that time? And with a bit of hindsight, you know, why did that happen? How much do you think did you all push each other to get better and better? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, there was an amazing generation there. And I think mostly it stemmed, you know, probably from, from Jim Saltonstall, I think, because he, uh, you know, when I look back and think about the youth training camps and sort of laugh about some of the things we were getting up to and, and all the rest of it and some of the coaching sessions. But Jim Saltonstall, of course, well, I mean, he, he masterminded, you know, the youth training scheme. Yeah, in the that, UK. that's right. But I think, I think what Jim sort of instilled in us more than anything was this belief that we could be successful. Because up until then, we'd had people like Rodney Patterson, who was a long time before, and Mike McIntyre, Bryn Vale, won the, won the gold in Seoul in the star. Laurie Smith, who was, who was um, you know, done amazing things professional in professional sailing in, in America's Cup, and I think won the bronze, bronze medal in 92. And, and then there was this sort of next generation, and we hadn't really been that successful in, in anything really for a while, I don't think. And, and Jim instilled in, us, instilled in us this belief that we could be, you know, we could go out and win world championships or go to the Olympic Games and, um, and made us believe that that was a possibility. And so I think that group you then saw, there was obviously some talent there, but that was nurtured by Jim and, and a lot of the other people, you know, clubs around the country, you know, I mentioned Phil Slater, but many, many um, volunteers that really helped support and, um, and develop clubs around the country um, so if you put that talent and, and gave it the right support, um, then we were able to, uh, well, you, you and I were involved in the, that, you know, you were slightly before me with the Olympics, but coming into that, guys like Rod Carr, John Derbyshire, trying to set up the right foundations and support network and then funding. Um, so that as that came together and we had the talent, it was uh, just a magical recipe. By 1995, you're only 18 years old and you're youth world champion, but also on a real trajectory, destination Atlanta for the Olympic Games of 96. Back then, I was also trying to qualify for the Games and I set up camp that year in Weymouth. It was the venue for selection. Um, do you remember, I mean, as, as my memory is that, and it's not much of an exaggeration to say this, you were out sailing nearly every single day. I mean, the natural talent Ben was there, of course, and the determination, but that early success, it didn't just come from nowhere, did it? There was a lot of hard work going into that. Yeah, yeah, no, there was, and I, I think that's right. In any sport, any walk of life, there are so many talented people. I do genuinely believe that the difference comes from hard work. But I remember you, actually, sort of slightly embarrassing, but for me, you know, watching you and how you operated, um, particularly the 96 Olympics, the professionalism that you put in, into your campaign. I, that, was a, that was a great example for me and I think for a lot of others of just that single-minded focus that you need to have. Um, and, uh, and, so, and John, John Merricks and Ian Walker as well, they, they were real high performers, great role models, and, and they helped me a lot as well. Um, guys I could look up to, great advice. And um, yeah, but it doesn't, you're right, it doesn't come for nothing. You've got to get out there, you've got to put the hours in. And um, it's the same in any, any walk of life, really. I used to, you know, open my curtains and if it was raining, I'd think, oh, God, maybe just the gym today. Then I'd see Ben Ainsley was out and I'd go. Well, and I, and I trained with a great guy called Mark Littlejohn, who went on to be a fantastic coach. And he and I, yeah, we'd go out and we'd sort of go out at hammer and tongs for hours and hours. And those were great days. I looked back to them, you know, training through the middle of winter, down in Weymouth, staying in 
you know, some dodgy B&B where you had to put your 50p in the slot to get the heater to work and running out of money and all those sorts of things that we, we did back then. Uh, it was great. By the Olympic year, you'd made massive strides. You medaled at the Laser World and were already seen as a real contender. I mean, still so young, so much expectation. What's your memory of how you approached the Games in Atlanta? Did you think you could win then? Well, I was, yeah, as you say, I was on this massive uh, trajectory of, uh, of learning and, and the results were getting better and better. I won the Europeans just before the Games and was third at the World Championships. But there was this guy called Robert Shite who was annoyingly good um, that won pretty much everything. And uh, I think all of us sort of had the expectation that Robert was the firm favourite going in, into those games. And for me, it was just a matter of how quickly could I keep improving. And um, the one thing that I did have, and I was fortunate, and I know that you did as well, I was really quick downwind. And, and uh, in any form of, of sailing, that's, that's a massive tool to have in your uh, uh, weaponry because if you mess up a start or you go the wrong way on the first beat you've you've got some kind of an out you can get yourself back to a, a respectable result and then the races that you obviously get it right you're you're, you're up there in, in, a, in a strong position so those games i remember i started terribly the first race i think it was 20 in the 20s or something and i was overheating it was very hot and humid in savannah i was overheating sort of bits were probably blown away by the occasion and I had to sort of settle my nerves a little bit between the races. I had a much better second race although I got tangled up with a woman Mark was a big pile up of boats and a guy a French guy called uh, Guillaume Floron who actually would go on to become somewhat of a nemesis I, I would say through my Olympic sailing career um, put in a protest well I didn't actually know at the time but afterwards I saw on a notice board I was being protested. I couldn't really work out for what because I didn't really sort of managed to avoid everyone and stayed out of trouble. And anyway, I went to see him and he said, oh, well, you made me tack onto, onto port and then I got hit by someone else and that was all your fault because you didn't keep clear of me. What are you talking about? Anyway, so he put this protest in and told this story, which was an outright lie. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, and as we all know, and, protest rooms it's your your you know there weren't really any witnesses I don't think at that time and it all happened quite late I mean, you know how am I gonna how am I gonna deal with this because it's you know his word against mine and he's protested so I've kind of got to prove somehow that this didn't happen anyway in the, I think you remember that Marriott hotel which was the Olympic village they had at the end of each day's racing they put the big screen up and they showed the racing and we were waiting as the jury was sort of deliberating and thankfully the race came up and the first one with Mark and this this incident and exactly as I, I had said it happened you know I'd come in on uh, on uh, we were both on port tack uh, Graham had got taken out by I think it was the American American um, guy and uh, they got tangled up and I'd sort of tacked around and gone off and so I said to the the chairman of the jury I don't really know and I was you know I was only 19 I was a bit um uh, you know, inexperienced in terms of protests and how they all they were. I said, I don't know if this is right, you know, to procedure, but I've just seen the incident on the TV. It'd be really helpful if you had a look at it. And he was a really nice guy, the, the chairman, as I remember, is an elderly guy and really um, one of those sort of guys that trying to do the right thing and supportive. And so he said, look, okay, leave it with me. We'll go and have a look. And then they came back and 
course, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's as you said it was, and um, we're just going to throw out the protest. But uh, that, that unfortunately wasn't the end of my, um, my run-ins with Graham Florent as a sort of experience again, I think, in, in Athens a few years later. I love that you remember all the detail of that. Yeah. 24 yeah. years. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's a bit scary. So after those initial moments, you did actually put together a strong series. And for our listeners that won't maybe remember this, it went down to a final battle for gold between you and Brazil's Robert Scheid. It was a rivalry that the sailing world would, of course, get used to seeing a lot. Uh, what happened in that last race? A fleet race, of course, before we went to medal races uh, yeah. and all of that. Tell us what went on, Ben. Yeah, so the deal was Robert had quite a good lead. Um, uh, you know, with about three or four races to go, we were pretty much neck and neck. And then I remember the, the penultimate race, Robert had a really good one. I was maybe eighth or something like that. So he ended up with, a, with a, about an eight-point gap. And um, so, I mean, it was, you know, I had a chance, um, you know, of, of, of the gold, but an outside chance. And then uh, Per Moberg from Norway was, was in third and a little bit about similar distance behind me. And uh, so going into the final race, I, I was just going for it to try and win the race and, and, and see if maybe Robert had a problem and maybe it, it would go my way. And we had quite a few false starts. I think the tide was pushing us over the line. And then it ended up with a black flag start. And I remember I was about 10 boats down from the, from the committee boat. Robert was at the committee boat. And he, he went over the line quite clearly, probably with about 20 seconds to go. And I think he just took the decision, I'm, I'm done. You know, it's obviously over the line. I'll just sheet in and go and see if I can convince as many boats to go with me, which is quite a smart move, really. And uh, unfortunately, I was in that pack that, you know, I, knew, I knew I needed a good start. I needed a good race if I was going to win it. So I sort of got, uh, got sucked into going with the group and, and unfortunately was over the line. So it was a bit of an anticlimactic way to end it all, really. And then, uh, and then to, you know, make my, I remember Pear came up to me after I'd been disqualified and said, oh, thanks, thanks very much. Now I can win the silver medal. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty sporting way to... To, to deal with it <laughs> anyway thankfully he didn't he didn't have such a good race so uh he, he ended up with a bronze medal win. and uh robert robert obviously took the gold which um i remember at the time i was kind of devastated because as we all know in sailing you know you don't necessarily get that many shots to go especially here in in the uk we've got so many talented sailors um and just qualifying itself had been hard enough in 96 so i wasn't sure if i would ever necessary no you know it sounds crazy now but i wasn't sure i'd ever get the chance again to go to the olympics and i was a really good chance of winning the goal and i sort of blown it um but so i got again you know, i got back to the dock and you know you, all the teammates were there and uh and then i got to see my parents later on and sort of realized actually it's it wasn't a bad bad shot it wasn't a bad go at it and um you know hopefully i get another chance someday i always thought that robert took you out in that final no, race. no, he no, he didn't. I mean, there's been been a lot talked about it, um, but no, he he, um, you know, he he, uh, he was clearly over the line and decided to try and take as many people with him, which um, you know I think was perfectly entitled to do and and uh, probably pretty good move. So you're 19 years old. You're standing on the podium for a nation that back then. I mean, hard to believe, but Team GB didn't win many medals. What were you thinking? 
was I thinking? Oh, good question. I think I was, I think I was trying to work out how I was going to get myself to the top of the podium rather than halfway, halfway up it. And, uh, you know, the great thing, although Robert and I had many, many really tough, tough races then and then in the four years building up to Sydney and including Sydney, I mean, those were amazing experiences and from a, you know, sporting perspective, putting yourself up against the very best. Um, and actually my development as a sailor and as an athlete was so much more advanced because of that, that competition with, with Robert. So whilst I probably would have won a hell of a lot more if he hadn't been around, I, I think it certainly made me a much, much better sailor. Uh, so um, no, they were very memorable times. How did that silver medal change your life? I mean, there weren't many medalists from the British team. We finished a lowly 36th in the medal table. When you got home, were things different? Um, yes and no. Uh, I mean, I think as anyone who's done an Olympic campaign will tell you, there's this sort of moment of, of anti-climax when you finish in Olympics and you get, whether you've been successful or not, I think you get home and suddenly you, it's a realization that there's not really anything there in terms of don't have to get up to go training. That's that not intense focus is gone. And that was quite a weird experience the first time I went through it. And actually I learned quite a lot from that to help me in, in my future Olympic experiences or campaigns. Uh, but coming home, no, I mean, I, I remember Steve Redgrave, uh, they put him on This Is Your Life. And I didn't even met Steve Redgrave and because I'd been one of the few medalists. I got invited along to go on the show. And I remember this hilarious moment where for those that don't know the show, they have obviously Steve Redgrave. They go back through his life and bring on through the show people that, that uh, you know, family members or teammates or whatever. And so it came around to these sort of Olympic teammates. And they said, and you know, you're a great mate from, from sailing, uh, you know, Ben Ainsley. And, and so off I came, on I came to the stage and you can see Steve Redgrave hadn't got a clue who I was. Hadn't got the foggiest. And, uh, and uh, a sort of hilarious moment where I sort of shook his hand and uh, off I went. And I was, um, you know, as we talked about, I was really rather shy. So I was in a terrible sort of state of, oh my God, he doesn't even know who I am. And I'm on this show and oh, this is terrible. And then thankfully, because a lot of people don't know, Steve Redgrave actually sailed for an America's Cup team back in 87 um, in Fremantle as a grinder. And one of his great mates, was also a grinder who was on the, on the, on the show. And uh, he was very nice and obviously he realized I was a bit uncomfortable about the whole thing. So he came over and we were having this great chat about the cup in 87 and so on. And uh, so I got, got through the evening that way. So that was one of the few sort of TV appearances I, I did. Um, and then the other thing I sure remember as a, a guy, a guy called Tim Hancock, who people know is one of the top race officers around, who was also a very, very good uh, sailor. And um, I remember catching up with him and he said to me something that was really interesting. He said, I think not winning the gold medal is probably the best thing. You won't think this, but I think it's probably the best thing that could have happened to you because if you had, okay, you'd be getting all of this, you know, you'd be the only other gold medalist along with Steve Redgrave and Matt Pinson, all this attention. But actually, you're so determined now to try and go out and win the gold medal next time that you're going to, you know, focus that much harder, train that much harder rather than sort of if you win a gold medal at 19 and suddenly the whole world's at your feet and it's quite easy to probably get lost and distracted and, and not focus on the sports you should be doing, which is quite an interesting comment. I mean, I didn't quite agree with him at the time, but 
Maybe he was, was that right. true? I mean, how, yeah. how determined were you to stand on the top step in Sydney? Yeah, I mean, that was everything. Uh, just the, the next four years, uh, you know, put every waking moment into um, trying, to, trying to make that happen, which, as we talked about, was hard because uh, Robert was such an amazing sailor and athlete. And so we had oh, incredibly intense rivalry, incredibly intense. And uh, we, I think we... We actually liked it, certainly from my side. There was a lot of huge amount of respect, but when we were out on the racetrack, it was uh, no holes barred. It was full on, and um, yeah, we had our we had our moments. But uh, yeah, like I said, we look back to some of the races that we had. I remember one race in the World Championships in in Chile, and uh, it was a windy venue, and Robert was very very good in the stronger winds. And I got in front in this race. I didn't have the best of series, but I'd managed to get in front in this race, and he was had a slight edge over me upwind. He's quite a tall guy, so he had more leverage, incredibly fit, great technique. He's just ever so slightly quicker upwind. And remember, we got out, managed to get him out all the way out to the port, port hand lay line and tack and cover. And those days were on much longer courses. So we probably spent about 20 minutes on port tack, neck and neck back into the finish. And I've, I've never, <laughs> never hiked so hard in my whole life. I remember crossing the line absolutely knackered and uh, we had that sort of hit. and actually on that race I think it maybe was a penultimate race on that race him finishing second meant he won won the world so I remember we had that sort of uh, acknowledgement of it. it was a great race and he, he'd, he'd obviously won won the uh, had won that particular battle but he won the war in the, in that world championships but yeah just amazing amazing rivalry it's great he was saying something, but we, whenever we had our little moments, we'd always be shouting at me in Portuguese. The most stupid thing you could have done at that point was wind me up, because I was just livid. That's a bit of a sort of rolling dice moments. But eventually it got to the point where he was ahead. So at the Sydney Games, at the Millennium Games, in the wonderful Sydney Harbour, the whole yeah. British team was fueled with real resources, I guess, for the first time. And there was a, a real confidence, wasn't there? There was you, Percy, Ian Walker, Billy Barker, me, of course, all riding a kind of new wave of confidence. There was a huge expectation that we'd all deliver. What was it like for you in, in Team GB at that time? Yeah, you're right. It was a brilliant squad, fantastic squad. When you look back at, you know, you mentioned a lot of the characters there huge amount of talent, great um, support from John as the team manager. Um, I think the thing all of us felt with Sydney though, was just such a difficult place to sail. And we'd all invested so much time being there to try and learn the nuances of the harbour. And I think obviously we did a good job of that, but still pretty random place to sail. And that was quite scary when you've sort of invested that much time and effort into something. Um, and certainly there were moments in that competition where it was a bit of, you know, roll the dice and not really sure how this is going to play out in terms of the strategy of the race course. Uh, so yeah, it was, um, it was, a, I, I remember that was probably the most intense period I've had in my life, actually, I think because of getting the silver medal in 96, being so focused on getting the gold, but not only having to go up against Robert, but also the venue of Sydney, um, there were no nothing was a given there so it was um it was very very intense i remember that it's a pretty stressful time i don't i didn't actually it was probably the one time in my career i haven't actually really enjoyed sailing that much and most most of the time i pretty much all the time i, I love being on the water but 
that that period in the build-up and that competition wasn't that much fun because it was just so I remember just being so stressed about about the the, the competition and uh, and trying to obviously trying to get get the gold medal there's so many variables weren't we we were sailing in September which you know the spring spring weather yeah I think we had we were on the same course and I think we had do we have three or four courses with all the variables of the compass it was just it was so hard to kind of lock down it's the mind, variables. It's a minefield. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really was. Yeah. Well, by the final race in Sydney, Ben, it was another battle between you and Robert Scheidt, but this time with some complicated maths. I had to take a quick look back at this race on the actual day. I, you know, I had a bit on myself <laughs> to yeah. actually watch your race. So it didn't have all the details to memory, but it's a real testament to your approach i think you had a, a choice didn't you to try and win the race and hope that shide was ninth or worse and you take gold or you could take it on control him and make sure he was 21st or worse when the discards kicked in you'd take gold that way talk us through the choices you made and your memories of that afternoon yeah i mean i had a bit of a game plan going out the two races on that final day uh, was, you know, I was, I guess, pretty obvious. See how the first race goes, and then, you know, if got a got a bit of a points lead, work out how to defend that. But if things didn't go that well, then then there was always an option of trying to use the discard uh, and 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 try and get those points back that way. Um, and so the first race of the day, the penultimate race of the series, didn't go that well. For me, Rob, Robert had a great race. I think he won it, or was first or second, and I knew that if he won it, I needed to be, I think, ninth or something like that to still be in the game, you know? And at one point, I, I wasn't. And uh, it wasn't until the final downwind that I managed to just scrape in to... Uh, just scrape in enough to... Um, We're in Portsmouth, as for the traffic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Off go the Navy, bless him. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, just scrape in to give myself a chance. And then uh, after the race, uh, you know, before that final race, spent quite a bit of time with John Darvish and my coach chatting about the options. And John, it was funny because John, lovely guy, great coach, um, very um, sort of placid person, I suppose, um, very calm. And, and uh, I remember him saying to me, well, look, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to really do a proper job you know like you, you know there's no half halfway you know you're gonna have to really go for it which is kind of really unlike John and uh, I remember thinking well actually if John's giving me that advice I really am gonna have to go for it and you're kind of right because you're going you know one of the you know most talented guys to ever set foot in a boat in my opinion um, and you've got to try and get him outside the top 20 it's you know massive ask massive ask but the breeze was, was blowing out of the uh, out of the west on uh, you know over Point Piper there. Uh, sorry, Bradley's head. Really, really random, super random, and just to my mind, going out trying to win the race that really was rolling the dice. Whereas actually doing what I did, at least I had some chance to try and control the situation. And so yeah, went went into it. The first start, I don't think Robert was necessarily expecting it or expecting me to sort of come after him so intent intensely and I remember I think I 
got him into outside the lay line for the pin end and actually was locked out from starting. But the race was postponed or was recall, I can't remember which. And so I remember being really frustrated because I, I managed to get a jump on him, but now he knew what my game plan was. And so we came into the actual eventual start and I left it until really, really late and managed to come in and get a, get a hook on him and push him up head to wind and, um, and then bear away and, and sort of as the gun went, he was, he was sort of, you know, high and slow and, and had, a, had a really bad start. And actually, I think we'd even had, a, had contact. So he went off and did some turns. And then, uh, then I remember thinking, oh, actually, that's not enough. I'm going to have to stop here, <laughs> which seemed crazy. It's the sort of first time I'd ever really done that in a race. So I started doing turns to sort of stay with him. And then we, we were right at the back of the pack, obviously, by that point. And then we had this amazing first beat. We would have done, I think, 20, 30 odd tacks. Bang, 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 bang. Remember one tack, caught the toe strap with my big na toenail only. Was so close to throwing myself out of the boat. I was like, oh, you know, right on the knife edge. And then we got to the top mark and I managed to, I'd done a little bit of team racing with, with bits and pieces. And I'd, I'd always loved the match racing game and watched the America's Cups. And, so I managed to sort of set up this trap where, whereby Robert couldn't attack for the mark. And then we did a jibe round and then eventually he just got frustrated and jibed into me and, and, and actually sort of ran me out of the way and sailed off. And, and actually to, to his credit, I mean, phenomenal comeback. He got himself back to, I think, 22nd, 23rd, which given, I mean, by this, you know, the leaders were already around the leeward mark and we still hadn't gone around the windward mark. So how on earth he got himself back there? God only knows, but uh, he did. But we'd had, he didn't make, he didn't make enough places back. Then we'd had this incident. Um, he, you know, he was really upset about it. He felt that it was unfair that I tried to take him out of the race. So he protested me. I protested him for the collision that we'd had. And then we, you know, we had a, a quite a long wait with the jury, a couple of hours where we went through it all. And, uh, and in the end they decided, look, you know, it's kind of, the no, no, Ben didn't break any rules here. Um, you might not like it, but that's um, that's within the rules. And actually, you know, this collision. Sorry, but you're in the wrong. So we're going to disqualify you from the race. So, I mean, I, I totally understand why why Robert was upset. You know, because he had a gold medal there, and 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 that got taken away. And um, you know, I think he his view was it wasn't it wasn't a clean race. And my view was well, yeah, but. That that's this has happened before, and the, you know, you know, if you can actually sail some, get into someone, and within the rules, and that's not that's not an easy thing to do. Um, then uh, then that's that's the game, in my view. Um, and yeah, there's quite a lot of controversy about it at the time. Um, but you I got think a bit now, of stick, didn't you, from um, Roger Bannister? Uh, Roger Bannister, it, yeah. Unsporting. Yeah, I know, and I remember because he's a hero and. In, in, in England, obviously, you know, first guy to break four minute mile. And uh, I remember thinking, well, yeah, but you have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> when it comes to sailing and, and, uh, and the sport and, and the rules and all the rest of it. Um, but, you know, the same, I could understand it. I could understand it. But, um, you know, I think it's interesting how the sport's developed now. We have the medal race and that is trying to actually instigate these battles between the, the medalists. So, um, yeah, I think it was maybe it was a little bit ahead of its time, but 
The footage, you know. Ben, is, you should, I don't know if you've watched it recently, I suspect not, no. but it's, the footage is great. I mean, in the race before, you see Scheidt crossing the line, he did a better race than you, and he's pumping the air like he's already won his gold medal. Yeah. Then in that final race, particularly at the top mark, you're totally schooling him. Um, I mean, listeners, if you get on YouTube, do take a look. Honestly, it's a great watch. What was going on at that time? I mean, what was, what was Robert saying? It must have been so desperately frustrating for him. Yeah, he was saying something, but we, whenever we had our little moments, which we had quite a few in our races where we'd start sort of shouting at each other, he'd always be shouting at me in Portuguese, so I had absolutely no idea what, what he was saying. Um, yeah, I mean, he was obviously frustrated. Um, and he was trying desperately to um, to try and get out of the situation, and uh, and then, like I say, it was actually pretty phenomenal that he managed to get back where he did. To be honest, and I remember him going, and then I I just kind of well, well, I just did the course, and I was watching him. He'd got ahead, he got a gust downwind, and I, and he just got away from me. And um, I remember just watching his race, thinking, you know, is he going to do it? Or has he got to now? And then some people, I remember there's a guy, Stanley Tan from Singapore, he's a lovely guy. And he was, the, I think the next guy Robert had to get past to get, and I remember sort of screaming, go Stanley, go Stanley, you know, trying to make sure, make sure he, um, he could hold off Robert downwind, which to his credit he did. And that was quite amazing because Robert was electric downwind, but for some reason he couldn't get past Stanley Tan and that was the difference. Stanley Tan saved yeah. the day. But it's amazing, isn't it? And I'm sure you're the same, for you when you look back at your career and all the other people you've spoken to the differences when you think back are tiny between winning or not and uh it's quite scary at times you think how easily things could have gone turned out differently well there's plenty more to talk about ben obviously but whilst we're still in sydney looking back at it firstly that decision to be the aggressor to take it on then, of course, the execution, absolutely bossing a man who at the time was one of the sport's real stars, still is. I mean, that gold medal, with everything else you've achieved since, that must still be a big highlight. Yeah, de definitely. It's, uh, I remember that at the time it was just relief, really. I think uh, you speak to a lot of people that... Uh, you know, particularly with the Olympics, because this, this is intense four years, actually just getting the job done. I think relief is your initial feeling. And then there's sort of the great moments of sharing it with family and friends and teammates. And we had such a great team there, like you said, that um, we were able to share in that moment. Um, I remember the big difference being, we talked about it before, the podium. And then you get, you know, this little, as you know, you get this little extra step um, in the Olympics podium anyway. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this, this is a difference. I've, I've made, <laughs> made it for the extra step. It's a kind of bizarre thing to be thinking about as you're going onto the podium. But anyway, it's uh, yeah, a magical moment by the Opera House and, uh, and like I say, with your teammates and everything. Um, really, really very fond memories. Well, we're going to stick with the Olympics for a while, but there's been quite a few. <laughs> so we're going to jump forward a bit and I'm going to highlight them here. So you switched to the Finn for Athens and then Beijing, two more gold medals, just like that. Uh, and then in 2012, it was the big one. My first question, I guess, 
I mean, many athletes go for a lifetime without competing at a home Games. Can you remember the announcement? Can you remember how you felt when Britain was given the 2012 Games? I can imagine, Ben, it's either it's a massive excitement or a feeling of dread with all that added unwelcome distractions. Well, no, it's, I mean, I, I remember exactly where I was. It's sort of one of those moments you don't forget, isn't it? I was in Trafalgar Square, I was helping out uh, in a small way with the bid and I'd been asked to go to Trafalgar Square for the announcement and at that time I wasn't I was sort of umming and ahhing whether to try stay in Olympic sailing because I was working with um, been working with Keith Mills and Team Origin obviously the cup had been a big focus of being with Team New Zealand and really wanted to try and, and make my way in in that side of the sport and uh, and so yeah I was there in Trafalgar Square it was a bit of a shock announcement because it was really close to Paris wasn't it as to who was going to get it and uh, I remember just the atmosphere was electric in Trafalgar Square just took off unbelievable atmosphere and at that moment I just thought to myself I've got to be involved with somehow I've got to be involved with this even, even if I'm not racing I've got to try and be involved because it's going to be such an amazing event and so that's when I started trying to work out how I could get back in and get back into the fin and, uh, and start putting a campaign together. So yeah, it was a big, big moment. We have to ask Ben, I mean, the build-up didn't quite go to plan, did it? I mean, at the time you were under real selection pressure, weren't you, from your current teammate, Giles Scott. Giles was banging hard on the door of the selectors. And there was the incident with the camera boat at the Worlds in <laughs> Perth. I, I mean, how was your build-up to those games? Uh, I would actually, they were, they were quite good. Um, yeah, I mean, we had just qualifying was, that was a serious challenge because I've been out of the fin for a couple of years. Giles and a few of the other younger guys had come through, Giles in particular, going re sailing really well, really good technique, um, really learning to race well. So I knew it was going to be a pretty intense battle just to get that, that spot. And um, the, the trials in uh, Weymouth, it was the sail for Gold Regatta in Weymouth in 2011. So I'd been back in the boat then for about 10 months. My first event back in the boat was in Perth and it was just a shambles. I remember I was all over the place and it was quite windy. I hadn't put enough weight back on, I hadn't got my sailing fitness back. I was way off the pace. I remember I went around one leeward mark and um, just made a complete hash of it, fell over, fell over in my boat, almost capsized, sort of arse over to it. And remember some little laser radial kid who was watching, I guess his race was postponed or something, just you know, pissing himself in laughter. And I was just so embarrassed because like, there's this kid looking at me and he probably thinks, who the hell's that guy? He's a complete numpty, you know? So I knew I'd, I knew I had a bit on to catch up with Giles and the other boys. I mean, thankfully, Sid, uh, David Howlett, who was my coach for uh, most of my Finn career, was amazing in terms of helping me get back on the pace with the kit and so on. And um, so I knew I had good kit and it was a case of sort of getting the sailing fitness back and so on. But that self gold to get a 2011 was a really a big one a big career-wise was a massive event and I managed to, to win it and then get the nod for the pre-olympics and win that and then that sort of um, was the sort of selection done but then unfortunately I started you know we had the worlds in perfect you mentioned I had a slight run-in with some someone who got in the way um, another embarrassing been many embarrassing moments in my career that was one of them and um, yeah, that was a bit of a distraction because there were some people in the sport who were trying to, I think, use it as a bit of an opportunity to make life difficult. 
and I had to have a hearing, you know, with with World Sailing or ISAF as it was then, and um, and I lost the World Championships as well, which is pretty frustrating after sailing a pretty good week. Um, so getting through that, and then unfortunately through that as well, I managed to. Um, I've always sort of suffered with my lower back, and through those championships, I realised I was starting to get pain down down my left side, and getting back. It was, it was getting worse through the competition and getting back home, going to see the specialist and realizing that actually you know, getting trapped nerve and I needed to actually go through a procedure to free that up. And uh, so that was a really worrying time because I knew I was going to have to have surgery. I was going to knock my fitness, knock my sailing time. Then I had this added pressure of this, uh, this hearing about my, my, uh, my running in, in Perth. So yeah, it was a pretty stressful time actually then. And, um, and the surgery went well, and I got back pretty well, but I really struggled um, to get enough weight back on. And, and, and f for whatever reason, my body sort of felt like it was breaking down. So I went into the games and I was having injection in, in my ankles because they were cramp cramping up. Um, my back was bugging. <laughs> um, so I was really sort of patched together and not, not in great shape. So it was, it was, it was a really, that was, that was probably the toughest Olympics I've done, I think, because I didn't feel in great shape. It was it was a breezy summer down in Weymouth, and that's never, all the boats I've sailed, we talked about it earlier, I've sort of always set myself up to be quick downwind. And that was just a strategy I took because I, I felt that gave you the, a, a huge, um, a huge chance to have that downwind speed gave you, gave you, um, gave you the chance to come back and so I was light for the boat anyway and then if I didn't didn't have the fitness um, in, in the strong breezes that we saw I was struggling and Jonas Christensen and, and PJ Possum in particular really got their act together um, they did some good work I think with their rig and sails through the summer uh, they were both big guys and they they definitely had a, a lick of pace on the upwind and it was very very difficult it's uh, had to sort of muster every ounce of energy and determination and every every trick in the book really to come out on top on that one tim and i were out in the rib for the for the bbc um so we we lived every one of those <laughs> races out in the bay in weymouth i don't think my back had recovered either ben and there was a real battle wasn't there between um jonas or christensen and peter posma i mean in some ways it felt like they decided that beating up on ben ainsley needed to be a team affair you know how tough was that yeah i don't know I, I mean there was that one incident where we were all together and i went around it and it was it was to be fair it was pretty close but you know when you you, you know we all know when you've hit a mark you know and they all said oh you hit it the in a, Come on, guys! It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a soft one, you know. And um, anyway, it was, I had to do the turn because it was, you know, I couldn't risk going into a protest with with two, you know, two against one and witnesses and so on. But I remember it, was, it massively fired me up, and it's kind of what I needed. And and I remember saying them when I came in, so they made a mistake, and they did. I mean, that was the most stupid thing you could have done at that point was wind me up because I was just livid and. Um, you know, I said, you know, as I said, I was struggling, really struggling for energy and fitness. But, you know, sometimes you need something like that to just make you go that extra mile, extra bit of effort to um, to try and get back. So that was uh, that was a big turning point. Actually, they they helped me out <laughs> inadvertently. 
They made yeah. you angry. That was the quote of the day, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah, make me angry. Yeah. Another great comment. <laughs> and then, Ben, the medal race, the final day. We were watching again from the rib. We'd just been watching Ian Percy and Bart just miss out on that yeah. gold medal. It was yeah, so heartbreaking. Was and, and then it was your turn. And I remember feeling so nervous for you. It was the middle Saturday, Super Saturday, it was being called. In London, Jess Ennis, Mo Farah, Team GB were on a real roll. And you were carrying the weight of the nation down in Weymouth. What are your memories of that medal race? Well, firstly, as you said, um, person Bart, I mean, that was just, I can believe that watching that race unfold because they'd done such a good job and it all looked sort of in the bag and they'd sailed amazingly through the whole series. Polymer, there's only, I think, 10 boats in the fleet. So although they won most of the races, I think probably 50% of the races, couldn't actually get out much of a points jump on anyone. And then that race, that, that final downwind, we all knew that race course was really patchy and tricky and it just got caught out in a bit of a hole and, and Freddie had sailed a great race. Um, and I, and um, yeah, I was just sort of gobsmacked really looking at that. That's, you know, really, you know, two great mates. And so, so I was really, you know, genuinely was upset for those guys. And, um, but then very quickly I had to sort of try and just get on with my own race. I had enough, enough to sort of deal with. I remember I picked the wrong, I went out with the heavy air sail or, you know, heavy air sail, but the crossover was about 10 knots and it was actually lighter than I thought. So I had to change sails. Uh, so I was always, I remember I was a bit frustrated about that. Um, and then had to get into the race, but I don't know, there's always been something I, I've always loved about the intensity of races like that, that it's just, it's kind of all on the line and it's a bit, you know, it's a bit crazy, but those pressure moments, I think kind of why you do sport, right? Why you train, cause it's, that's when it gets exciting. And so that was as big as they come really. Um, sort of winner takes all, well not winner take, but whoever, whoever beat who, and of course PJ was there in the background, had a chance, sniffed it if, um, if as happened, we were, Jonas and I were right at the back of the fleet. Um, and I remember Jonas did a good job defending in the pre-start, um, a little bit like 2000 actually, I was coming in for a late maneuver right on the gun and then PJ, I think inadvertently tacked over and that completely scuppered things for me. And then I was actually a bit screwed. And, um, and Jonas had a, had a slightly better start. And I remember tacking away. And, and that course, that day was really tough strategically because uh, it was sort of a really light sea breeze. Um, there was a bit of a wind bend around the north head, the north head, sorry. And, uh, and then out to sea, the breeze trying to flick around a bit more to the south. And, you know, again, it was a bit of a sort of rolling the dice moments and I didn't really want to split from Jonas because I wasn't that confident which side was going to pay. So I sort of tried to stay with him, but obviously get the, 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 the shifts that we had up the middle. I think we went pretty much at the middle of the track on the shifts, got it slightly better than he did and, and got ahead and then had a really nice run. It was free pumping, light air free pumping. So right on that 10 knot limit. And I was quite good at that. And so I, managed to get myself through away from the pack into second and a nice little lead and I thought, this is this is okay and then uh and then i i was no way i was going to split from jonas because i still wasn't that confident in what the breeze was doing and i had this incredibly frustrating scenario where he went around the opposite gate mark which is kind of fine 
I tacked away and we did this really long port tack and actually I talked about there was a little wind bend around and off head which he was getting and I wasn't so it was just slowly closing the gauge and I wasn't gaining any bearing so I was constantly losing and meanwhile I could see that the breeze was coming in out to sea around from the south but there's no way I was going to split and I was constantly losing but eventually it got to the point where he was ahead so at that point I had to either stick with him and accept that he was going to be ahead but think you know try and find some way to pass him or tack away and uh, I remember it's a you know most bizarre you know moment we just think oh, I've now don't have control over this and you know it's kind of uh, you know it's kind of in God's hands a little bit um, so I, I tacked, tacked off and uh, yeah came back again found a nice little puff you know as the breeze was coming around to the left and uh, and still managed to stay ahead just just ahead and meanwhile PJ had gone out hard to the left like he rang the bell big time and that came came good for him and he got himself up to third I think third or fourth and uh yeah the final run in and I remember he had an incident really he well you know who knows who knows but uh, he went he went for it went for the gold trying to get past Dan Slater who's a guy who I'd first race against in 1993 in New Zealand when we were teenagers in the laser radials and we became good mates through through all of those years and sailing different boats lasers and fins and what have you and uh, Dan I think was he was racing for sixth or seventh and he said well no I'm, I'm going to defend the position which he did well and uh, they had a collision PJ got a penalty and and that was that but yeah couldn't have been any closer <laughs> that's for sure Oh, goodness, I'm, I'm yeah. like holding my breath as, yeah. you, as you're recounting that. I mean, do you remember the celebrations, Ben? I mean, I remember the scene so well. We were filming from behind you. You were in your boat, draped in the Union Jack, hands aloft, the fans on the nose, the grandstand area. They then broke out into rural Britannia. I mean, it felt like such an amazing occasion, a defining moment in such a successful career yeah i mean there was nothing you know i think can't really beat that can you in home games and being able to uh, get a fourth gold medal in front of a home crowd you know it was an uh, incredibly special moment again massive relief i think was the overriding emotion and then this uh, you know i was still you know talked about ian and bart and that was a massive disappointment and so i was in this you know, I was obviously really, you know, delighted to have won, but also trying to, you know, I didn't want to, you know, this sort of, in effect, you know, rubbing salt into the wound. So I was just trying to be really diplomatic with those guys. I could see how devastated they were. And uh, as a mate, just sort of trying to actually do the right thing and, and, um, and uh, you know, so that was that was really actually difficult. That was really difficult um, trying to trying to manage that. Um, but I remember we all got to the putt eventually after lots of shenanigans, having to do the media, and then we had a team event. Um, we finally got to the um, we got to the pub down on the on the front, um, and uh, all of our families and team you know teammates and mates were there, and um, we had an had an amazing amazing uh amazing session and uh because you know 
when you're in those environments, Olympic environments, you know, you know, you kind of locked off from the rest of the world a little bit. So to actually see family and friends and 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 celebrate was, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, very special. And that was that. And Olympics yeah. has passed since Rio, of course. Uh, by then, your attention already elsewhere. But looking back on your Olympic sailing now, what was your approach? What was different about your campaigns, Ben, that made you so successful? Uh, well, I think we sort of talked about the, the work ethic, the focus. You know, those are all things that you know, all, of the, all of the top players had. Um, some more than others. I mean, there are a lot of really talented guys I've seen in the sport who didn't really have the application, I think. Um, so that work ethic being number one. Um, I was really fortunate in the Finn that um, we talked about Sid, David Howlett, because he's super smart guy and mate, great sailor, but super smart technically. So it was really a sort of marriage made in heaven in terms of him being able to help on the technical side with the kit. And so actually the first year I got into the Finn, uh, within two or three months of sailing the boat, I'd managed to win the Europeans and World Championship. And that was purely because, you know, he knew, he knew the kit, he knew the gear, he knew what sort of setup would work for me. And I was able to get into the boat, make a few fine tunes and be on the pace straight away and then, and then managed to sail well. And uh, yeah, so he, he was a huge part of it really. And I remember probably the best thing coaching advice Sid ever gave me was, he said, you know, we started out, said, look, you know, obviously done well in lasers and, and, and the Olympics and so on. But he said, you know, I think the goal should be because we all know sailing's got this sort of randomness in it. Your goal really should be that you're good enough that if you have a bad week, you can you're still in the game, you can still win. And and so we sort of made that pact, really. And that's what we worked towards. And we got to that point, you know, and. and I think 2012 was a good example of that where really I didn't have a great week. I wasn't feeling that great. I didn't really sail all of that well, but I managed to just about keep myself in the game to, to have a chance. And so that was, that was a great bit of advice that I took, took with me and, and still use a lot. You know, it's a good bit of experience there from old Sid. I think your approach, Ben, was, was a bit different to mine. I mean, I loved I, work, I like to work hard, I like to sail a lot, but I like to stack the odds. So I, like, I generally wanted to be just faster. I know all sailors want to be faster than everyone <laughs> yeah. else, but I, I worked really hard to achieve that. But it felt when I watched you race, you brought something extra, like when it got really difficult, um, you know, when you needed, I don't know, that sort of controlled aggression, you could bring that on top. I mean, the number of times I watched you race, but you were, you know, 21st at the first march yep. and finished sixth. I mean, you need something special to deliver that. Yeah. I mean, I've always liked that element of being up against it. You know, the, the tougher the challenge, almost the, the more exciting it is. Again, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a strange approach. I mean, you really shouldn't be looking to make life hard for yourself. But I've certainly been a few occasions where I've managed to do that. And then had that challenge and sort of taking it on and, and um, found that rewarding in, in some kind of perverse way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've just, I just love, love that challenge. And yeah, again, we talk about it a lot, this downwind speed, is, it, it was a massive thing for me because I could be you know, in the 20s at the mark and be fifth by the bottom mark in some amazing um, downwinds. 
and that was always a, a, a great say a great tool to have um i think yeah again that that something about sport which i really like and i really enjoy those moments where you have to perform and you have to it's all on the line you got to sort of make it happen um I've, yeah I've, i i really find those moments rewarding they haven't 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 always worked out um but more often than not thankfully they seem to have and as the most successful Olympic sailor of all time, you're obviously more than qualified to have an opinion on this. You know, how do you think Olympic sailing is looking currently? How healthy is it looking as a sport? Yeah, I mean, I do have some big concerns about world sailing. I don't know any of the people there really. So I'm not, this isn't a criticism of any individuals. I just think the sport really needs strong leadership at the moment. Um, you've got some fantastic assets there, like the America's Cup. You know, I think what Russell Coots and Larry Ellison have done with CLGP has has huge potential. You know, there's offshore racing, and I think that needs some coordination. Um, what used to be the Whitbread and Volvo race now, and where that goes, and then of course at the, the Olympic level, the class selection is just a has been a complete mess for as long as you and I have been involved, frankly. Um, and then the grassroots level, how do you get more youngsters into the sport around the world? So I think it really does need strong leadership. I was, I was super uh, pleased to hear that you know, Dave Graham um, has been put in as, new, as a new CEO there. I think he's a great guy, done, done an amazing job with Oman Sale over the years. Uh, and I'm sure can, can really do a lot, particularly in getting more youngsters and grassroots level into the sport. But it does need help. You know the Olympic classes is is an obvious one, and then you know with these big events that you've got, how can we, how can we you know, consolidate so that you know you've got your Olympics, you've got your CLGP, America's Cup, around the world race, whatever that might be, and get the the you know the top guys in the sport competing. You know, your Pete Pete Burlings, so the younger top younger sailors coming through, and they I think frankly need more support from world sailing, the governing body to promote the sport and promote these athletes. Um, a lot of other sports do a much, much better job of that. And I, I think that's something maybe because in sailing before professionalism, um, you know, really only came about in the nineties, eighties, early, late eighties, early nineties. And it's quite a conservative sport, but I think it's really missed it, an opportunity in terms of promoting its it's, and I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about the next, you know, the Pete Burlings and, and younger than that, um, promoting those sailors and really obviously helping them, but more importantly, helping, helping grow the sport. So I'd like to see much more effort from that. I hope, I hope Dave, Dave, wish him all the best with that role. Hopefully he can, uh, I'm sure he will do a good job. There we have it, podcast listeners, the Olympic sailing career of Sir Ben Ainsley, the most successful Olympic sailor of all time. An inspiring listen, I hope you agree. And I meant what I said, if you're at all into small boat racing, get on YouTube and search Ben Ainsley, Robert Scheid, Sydney. There's a Brazilian post on there with fantastic BBC commentary from my great friends Richard Simmons and Hugh Stiles. It's a bit odd as you'll have to jump forward to about four minutes, but make the effort. It's incredible watching Ben, his confidence with a gold medal at stake. Well, maybe don't try it once you get back out on the water for summer racing, but it's well worth the watch. 
There is still much to enjoy, everyone. Part two is already available online. In it, Ben and I talk about his early days in the America's Cup. We discuss how San Francisco 2013 went down from Ben's perspective, how he went from Jimmy Spittle's sparring partner to afterguard tactician with a famous defeat looming. That's a fascinating story in itself. And finally, of course, we discuss how things sit now as Ben and the team prepare for their next challenge in Auckland 2021. As ever, please do let me know what you think about the podcast at Shirley Sale on Instagram and Twitter, just me on Facebook. And please do remember to like, review and subscribe on whatever platform you're joining us on. It'd be great to know your thoughts on Ben's stories and to know how you've enjoyed any of the other podcasts available online. As ever, you've been listening to the expert work of Tim at Vertigo Films, who lovingly produces this podcast. Many thanks, Tim. You're a star. And a quick thanks to photographer friend Rick Tomlinson. Rick kindly dug out some shots of Ben from London 2012 that you may have seen on my social media channels. Rick, many thanks for letting us use those. And a quick thank you also to Sale GP for letting us use some footage of Ben in Sydney to help promote this edition. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and sail safe, everyone. This is Castle One. Race off the speaking. Raps are coming here, Crash is coming. We're 1.5 below. Two guys here, boys. We're looking at 10 fives and 42. This is Castle One standing by. Out. Oh.